At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Amy Willens will comment on Haiti after the assassination of the president. But first, Biden and Putin, the United States and Russia, what next? For that, we turn to Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Of course, she's publisher and editorial director of The Nation, and she writes a weekly column for The Washington Post. She's been engaged with Russia in writing about its politics for decades, we reached her today in New York City. Hi, Katrina. Thank you, John. Thank you. Well, the headline I saw recently was Biden optimistic after call pressing Putin to crack down on Russian-based cyber attacks. This came after the biggest yet ransomware attacks over the July 4th weekend that seemed to be coming from a criminal group inside Russia. Biden also said in that same statement, quote, the United States will take any necessary action to defend its critical infrastructure. So optimism about Russia sounds good, but any necessary action against Russia sounds ominous. What do you make of this? Well, I step back a little and think back to the summit, uh, the June summit in Geneva. It was not the 1985 summit with Gorbachev and Reagan, but the two leaders, Putin and Biden, did sit, come forward and say a nuclear war can never be waged and must never be fought. And what came out of it were working groups, which I think are important because summits are summits. Big, you know, splashy often. This was quite controlled, very brief, but uh, working groups came out of it. And one working group is the cyber security issue. And before coming to that, though, let me just say another working group was on climate and the climate crisis. And I'm encouraged, if I have optimism today, is that John Kerry is in Moscow to meet with uh, his former counterpart, which is interesting, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, to talk about cooperation. And Russia has to play a role, as does China, in terms of emissions. And they did, by the way, Lavrov and Kerry struck a, they had a good relationship in that period, which is not to be overly highlighted, but it plays a role. So I take, you know, I take some hope from these working groups moving forward on cybersecurity. It is cybersecurity to make it into cyber war, cyber espionage, uh, is I think escalating a problem that doesn't fully exist. We don't know if this was the Russian government, seemed to be criminal gangs, ransomware. The United States is engaged in cybersecurity issues. We waged the largest cyber attack, I believe it was on Iran in a military installation, Stuxnet, more than a decade ago. 
I think all of these countries are involved and to make it into more, to escalate it, could lead to retaliatory attacks on us. Uh, Russia's dealing with its own crisis internally in terms of cyber attacks on its infrastructure. My view is there need to be rules of the road. There was an offer of treaty. Uh, of course, that requires trust, but, you know, trust but verify. I'm a believer. <laughs> trust but verify. <laughs> Which has, you know, not fully lost its meaning in these decades mm-hmm. since it was first used by, I believe, President Reagan. To escalate it into cyber war leads to even a good senator like Senator Dick Durbin saying, well, it's like a Pearl Harbor attack. If it's a Pearl Harbor attack, what does that mean in terms of yeah. retaliating? So on the one hand, the Biden-Putin summit in Geneva led to these very important and promising working groups. But on the other hand, after the summit, American intelligence agencies released the statement exposing the details of what they called a global effort by Russia's military intelligence organization to spy on government organizations, defense contractors, universities, and media companies, and they reminded us that the Russian intelligence agency, the GRU, was the same group that hacked into the DNC and released emails in an effort to help Trump in the 2016 election, five years ago. That's from a report in the New York Times. What do you make of that reminder? Well, I think it's important to understand what was done and what wasn't done. We still don't know the full details of the hacking. In fact, there was a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing about a year ago where one of the CrowdStrike owners said that they don't know for sure if the computer was exfiltrated. But putting that aside, I do think what we call Russiagate was blown into something bigger. We have to be vigilant, certainly our state election equipment and infrastructure, all of that. But I do think that um, it became focused, the foundational document, the Steele dossier, has imploded, has really imploded. And if people want to uh, read compelling 14-part series by Eric Wemple in the Washington Post, he went journalist by journalist and called for a reckoning, an account. I mean, the Steele dossier was based on a MI6 wannabe, had been, and poor sources. And it defined, if you recall, the P-tape defined Trump's first days before he was inaugurated, BuzzFeed uh, leaked it. I you know, personally feel you do need to see documents that uh, the high, higher up Poobah see, but it has been debunked uh, very well by not only Eric Wemple, but by a New York Times reporter who has a book out called, called Spook. John, I also think that the trauma to the body politic was so intense when Hillary Clinton lost that there was a search for a reason. And I do think the Clinton team began with the Russia story. And what it did was, okay, let's be vigilant, but we didn't pay attention to our own pathologies, our own American pathologies, or try to better understand for the future of our politics why Trump won. Now, he didn't win the popular vote, but that's our system, which we have to reform. But you know, why was it that people in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio voted for him when he talked about endless wars and he committed more wars? I mean, he was... And by the way, the policy toward Russia was as if he had been paid by anti-Russian forces. I mean, he withdrew from the remaining arms control treat, uh, agreements. He considered more and more sanctions, though Congress played a role. Biden has come in. If he was Trump and what he did with the German 
European pipeline. I mean, he'd be called a Russian asset. But because it's no longer Trump in the White House, thank God, we don't have the Trump, Putin, Putin, Trump. And that obscured not only a country and its politics, but I think forced, led us not to deal with our own our own issues. In a recent Washington Post column, you quoted Bernie Sanders, who praised Biden after the summit for recognizing authoritarianism as, quote, a major threat to democracy. But what else did Bernie say? Yeah, I think it's very important because there is a there is a risk with this rules of the, you know, rules based order. Whose rules are they? Why not international law? Sounds a little sometimes like, you know, the leader of the free world, which I have. Um, what Bernie said, which is so important, and I think Biden gets, is that you need we need to do a lot at home to build up our own democracy in order to be a beacon, true beacon for the world. Instead of going out to find the monsters, as John Quincy Adams said in his famous speech, we do better to rebuild our democracy and be, be a strong example. And I think that is uh, important. And Bernie is speaking to that effectively. Now, Bert, Bernie got in trouble back then because he had sat, th- there was a criminalization of diplomacy, John. Poor Bernie had been involved with sister cities exchanges. If people don't remember those, it was like the mayor of Burlington and the mayor of Yaroslav. And they'd go to see churches and, you know, local entrepreneur. And that became a sinister thing. This is not. So we have to kind of rethink of d- diplomacy dialogue and we've, you know, that has been a little bit lost as, uh, as an art form. Uh, you wrote in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago that a new Cold War-style face-off between the United States along with NATO on the one hand and Russia and China on the other is what you called the establishment's sweet spot. What did you mean? Well, you, you know, I never want to be reductionist, but having really studied the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and our good contributor Bill Hartung's work on the military, industrial, media, congressional complex, there's, a you know, the budget, Biden's budget is larger than Trump's. And a lot of money for equipment, weapons that even scientists like Frank von Hippel or the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists think are counterproductive at this time, like ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So I think there's a race on to go, you know, we're moving away from counterinsurgency, witness the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I think is important to support and find ways to help those non-militarily. But um, battle with Russia and China or the looming Cold War is a sweet spot for the military in a way that counterinsurgency wasn't. So I don't think that can be denied or be called reductionist. I think it's real. And I think China has been in the, uh, what do you call it, in the uh, crosshairs for years. And Michael Clare, who writes for us, has been writing some very good things. I would say Michael has a committee, which people should know about. It's a committee on sanity about Russia, which we published a little piece about. And in another realm of the arena, I've revived a group called the American Committee on U.S.-Russia Accord, usrussiaaccord.org, which is just to try and bring some sanity and has some interesting people. We did an event with the Quincy Institute uh, with Jerry Brown, who is a really kind of invested in climate and ending Cold Wars. You know, we hear a lot from not just Republicans, but also Democrats in Congress saying that China poses existential threat to the United States today. What do you consider the real security threats we face? Climate crisis, militariz- militarization, accidental nuclear war, 
uh, poverty. One more, pandemics. How could I forget? I, that's an overarching frame, which, John, should lead us to rethink what security means. Because I think rethinking in what they call human security or what Gorbachev called new thinking, it shouldn't be that new, but it should be, we need to rebuild and reinvest in our country. We've seen it from everything from racial justice to housing to pandemic protection. And I just fear there is another lost opportunity, which we may be on the cusp of if we don't see more clearly the real challenges and threats. We need to rethink what real security means. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about Haiti. After Haiti's president was assassinated on July 7th, we heard a lot about the deepening spiral of turmoil and violence there. For comment, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She spent three decades reporting on Haiti, and she's written two books about Haiti, most recently the award-winning Farewell Fred Voodoo. Her writing about Haiti has appeared recently in the New York Times, the LA Times, she's been on NPR, and of course, in The Nation, where she's a longtime contributing editor. She's also a Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches literary journalism at UC Irvine. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, I always start our conversations about Haiti with a reminder about why we care. Haiti is not just another terribly poor country where terrible things happen. Haiti's history is a crucial part of our history. Remind us, please. We had our revolution against the European powers in 1776. Then the French had their revolution across the water. Then the Haitian slaves rose up in revolt against the masters on the island in 1791 and actually uh, won their freedom from France in 1804 in an incredible earth-shaking revolt that shocked the world of <clears throat> the slave-owning economies across the globe, especially the United States, some 700 miles from Haiti, was quite horrified by this and didn't recognize Haiti for another 60 years. And beyond that, of course, we intervened in Haiti later on from 1915 to 1934 with a Marine occupation after the previous assassination of a Haitian president in 1915. And uh, we um, have continued to sort of uh, mix in with Haiti's politics to to approve of coups, to support dictators, to take out uh, democratically elected presidents. And then uh, here we are not knowing what to do really in the wake of the assassination of Jovenel Moise. So Haiti, the only successful slave revolt in modern history, establishing the world's first black republic. Before we get to the assassination and its aftermath, let's talk about what life is like right now for the Haitian people. In the aftermath of this killing, there's no real president. There's So that's a, that's a very weird feeling for Haitians. Usually you may not like the president, but there's a president. This president was was pretty much universally not liked. And that's the nicest thing you can say. He was almost universally really disliked. And uh, that's not only because of his 
bad personality, his utter negligence of the, the nation, his, his encouragement of violence, but also because of his corruption and the way it seemed that he was encouraging what's known as the business mafia in Haiti to take controls of and really have a stranglehold over the entire Haitian economy, uh, which they were using to enrich themselves, which they've been doing for a long time. Moise isn't the only one to allow this. It's hard to not allow it because these people are so powerful. And what does that mean for the daily life of ordinary people in Haiti? Well, it's not that different today after the death of Moise uh, than it was before. People are poor. The cost of living is way too high. Uh, There are gasoline shortages. There are blackouts almost daily, probably every day now. Transportation is prohibitively expensive. You don't have clean water. There's a threat of cholera. COVID is spiking there, finally. So it hasn't been that bad, but it's bad again. And there are no vaccines available in the country. The government never managed to figure out anything to do with vaccines, although vaccines were offered to them. Another example of Moise's intolerable and morally repugnant neglect of his people. You know, kids can't go to school. Of course, it's summer now, so that's better, but they can't go to school when there's school because there's too much violence in the streets. And that's been the biggest problem for the everyday Haitian and for every Haitian um, in the past three years of Moise's rule. There are gangs running the streets, gangs having uh, turf wars, gangs controlled by one faction or another, including the government. They're heavily armed. They have lots of nice vehicles and they dash around town kidnapping uh, what I think of as Haiti's future, the Haitian, small Haitian middle class that has a little money and can respond to a kidnapping with their relatives abroad in the United States or Canada or France. A lot of the American coverage for the last week has been about who done it. Was it the Colombians? What about those three Americans who've been arrested? And how come none of the bodyguards were injured in the assassination of the president? Were the bodyguards in on the plot? The Haitian police have identified and picked up 17 people they say were part of the assassination team. That's fast work. Are you impressed? I'm so impressed. <laughs> the Haitian police in the past three years, four years, five years of the Moise administration has not arrested and tried a single suspect in all of these kidnappings, rapes, and murders that take place every day on the streets of Haiti, including of uh, foreigners, Haitian visitors from the United States that just haven't done their job at all. Uh, The one time they went in to try and do anything, they went into a bastion of the gangs, ostensibly, to wipe out the gang in that place and take them out. And the gang in the shantytown took over their tank, their armored car that they drove in, burned the vehicle, killed five guys. That's how well the police have done. So when the police, faced with an assassination of a president by a highly armed commando unit from abroad, manages to uh, bring him in like little sheep, tie him up and stick him in jail, I'm very, very concerned because I think it's a big lie. It is uh, the only good job the Haitian police have done in a long time, leading me to believe that not only was uh, some powerful person involved in the killing of the president, but that powerful person or group of people is involved with the police who know fully well who are the 
intellectual authors of this killing, and they know that they're not the Colombian mercenaries they have in, in hand. Of course, everybody's trying to figure out what comes next. And my question is about the grassroots groups, the progressive groups, the civil society organizations that you wrote about in The Nation. Tell us about them. Those groups who are right now, in my opinion, the heroes of Haiti and very, very brave. They're out there. They're putting their names out there. And just before the killing of Moïse, a woman named Antoinette Duclair, about whom I've written a little bit, and her friend, uh, a journalist named Diego Charles, were assassinated like eight days before the mm -hmm. president on a street at night in, in Port-au-Prince, point blank, really, basically. And this sent a, a tremor into the uh, hearts of the people who support progressive movements because Antoinette, who was known as Nettie, was very well-known, very outspoken, extremely charismatic, obviously a future leader of the country, right? And then the president is dead. Now, what does that say to the grassroots groups, the civil society groups, people in the opposition, political opposition to the president. Well, that says not only could we kill Nettie, but we could kill the president. And if you raise your little heads above the line of fire, you too are vulnerable. Everyone is vulnerable. We killed the president. We killed a future president, if you want to look at Nettie that way, which I do. And you could go too. So don't, don't mix in the next debate that's coming up. They have. For these grassroots groups, what, what are their priorities? Is finding the assassins their number one issue? Well, we need to know, not that we ever will, who, who are the intellectual authors of this assassination, because it speaks to what the future holds. That said, no, their prime interest is not, you know, and, and, and the former prime minister who's now declared himself head of state and who speaks to the media constantly has said our prime goal now after the assassination is to find the assassin. No, that's not my prime goal. That's not Haiti's prime goal. The prime goal for Haitians is to find a way forward for Haiti. And to find that way forward for Haiti is obviously, it's, it's not a clear path. There are several actors in, in this road. One is the people who are holding the reins of power right now. So that's Moise's fired prime minister, who's now declared himself the acting prime minister. He was fired the day before Moise was killed. The intellectual author of the crime, that's another person or, or group that is in the way of the future, or at least meddling in the future of the country. The international community, most importantly, the Americans were just down there yesterday uh, talking to the three, as I call them, the three comedians who have put themselves forward <laughs> as the acting president of Haiti. And then all the grassroots organizations, all the progressive people, all the civil society groups, and all of the opposition politicians uh, who would like to move forward with something new for Haiti. Now, this is a fractious group too. It's not an easy group to control. It's a bit of herding cats, but these are people who almost all have something good to contribute to a, a future Haiti. The Pentagon press secretary, a man named John Kirby, told Chris Wallace on Fox News a couple of days ago, quote, we value our Haitian partners, close quote. We value our Haitian partners. Never, <laughs> never has a government issued so many 
empty statements about a subject as the uh, United States government about this moment in Haiti. <laughs> we value our Haiti partners. What does value mean? Who knows? We would like to boss them around. Our Haiti partners, what does that mean? The Americans' Haiti partners in the past, the people who brought you Jovenel Moise and his predecessor, Michel Martelly, those Haiti partners are the business mafia, which are the people who've been talking to American presidents and the State Department since the coups against Jean-Bertrand Aristide in the 90s and then again in 2004. So there were two coups against this, the first democratically elected president of Haiti, who is seen widely as a progressive, who tried to do good for the Haitian people, hence his ouster. And the people who didn't like him, feared him, and worried about chaos under his rule were these same business mafia. You know, it's a lot of people, it's a shifting group of people, but it's people who basically have the stranglehold over the Haitian economy and uh, are, are lining their pockets with money that ought to be going towards social programs and the Haitian nation. Those are the Haitian partners of the past. And, and we if, value them. And we value them. And if you sort of scratch the surface of the Pentagon view here, you learn that the United States does have what it considers a security interest in Haiti, which is preventing Haitians from coming to the United States because things are so terrible there. Is there a secondary uh, interest as well? Yeah, we don't want Haitians coming here because because um, they're such good citizens when they get here, because they become part of the economy here, because they educate themselves and do a great job. Or maybe it's just because they're black. <laughs> so anyway, we don't want Haitians here. That's true. Um, is there another reason why the United States worries about Haiti? They want stability in Haiti. But the kind of stability they've encouraged in Haiti is not stability that anyone would call stability. And the reason Haitians aren't coming to the United States is because they can't figure out how to get in. But they, in fact, they are coming to the United States. They're not coming to Florida, a state that the Democrats worry about a whole heck of a lot. They are coming through Brazil, through flights to Brazil, no longer boat people, but plane people through Brazil. And they sometimes stay in Latin America and otherwise they come up through Latin America, cross Darien to the western border of the United States and Mexico. So that's the way that Haitians have been coming in during the Moise regime. And the Moise didn't want them to go by boat. Whatever they did, they didn't want them disturbing the Americans. Now they're in internment camps in, you know, El Paso or some such place. The Biden administration says the solution to all of this is elections. It's certainly better for Haitians to pick their own government than for the United States to install one. But is it possible to imagine free and fair elections in Haiti today conducted in an atmosphere without fear? There will be no elections conducted under anyone who is seen by the population as a Moise spinoff. None of these men who have presented themselves can possibly lead Haiti to free and fair elections by the end of the summer or by the end of the year. I believe that even what should happen, a consensus interim government of elements from the opposition parties and the progressive uh, civil society groups and grassroots movements 
won't be able to hold free and fair elections by the end of this year. We don't want Haiti to be forced to have elections that aren't meaningful. Undemocratic elections are what has harmed Haiti since really the, the earthquake and, and other times earlier. But certainly since the earthquake, we've had only undemocratic elections in which the international community has given a, a kind of stamp of approval to people who represent this business class. And it has not done done any good for the Haitian people. They're in, I mean, I know I was there at the end of 2019. Already, it was far worse than I've ever seen it. The poverty of the people, the uh, inequality, income inequality, which obviously everyone can tell is bad in Haiti, was worse than ever. You could see that the place couldn't move forward under this regime. And now, well, now the head of the regime has been removed, but what will follow it? That's the question. No more undemocratic elections for Haiti. Amy Willens, she wrote about what's next for Haiti for The Nation. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. This was great. Thanks a lot, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.